From WAMU 88.5 at American University in Washington, welcome to the Politics Hour, starring Tom Sherwood. I'm Kojo Nam. Tom Sherwood is our resident analyst and the contributing writer for Washington City Paper. Tom Sherwood, welcome. Hello, everybody. Later in the broadcast, we'll be talking with Phil Mendelssohn. He's the chairman of the D.C. Council. But joining us now is Matt DeFerranti, who is the chair of the Arlington County Board. Uh, Matt DeFerranti, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Kojo and Tom. Thrilled to be with you. Before we get directly to Virginia, Tom Sherwood, the National Zoo has announced that its longtime partner of 63 years or more Fonds, or Friends of the National Zoo, will no longer be in existence. The zoo says it simply can't afford to keep Fonds around anymore. For years, I thought Fonds was a, an organization completely independent of the zoo, that there were just people who kind of put up their own money. But this was a function that was, in fact, financed by the National Zoo. Well, yes, partially financed by the zoo. It's 18,000 current members of the of Fonz, and it has been identified with the Smithsonian Zoo for, as you said, 63 years. But, you know, like every other institution in town, the, the zoo is having uh, financial troubles. They've had to close for most of the last year. Uh, Fonz itself it had a staff of something like almost 30 people, and they've had to get rid of uh, half of them. There are no events there to raise money. The concessions, the volunteers, nothing to do. Uh, it's a little uncertain exactly why this, they are breaking apart after 63 years. I read the Post story and I read some Twitter about it. But I'm not exactly clear why they can't keep uh, cooperating with each other and they're actually breaking apart to two separate organizations. Uh, but this is a developing story, so I'm sure we'll hear more about it. On to Virginia, Tom Sherrod, reporting this morning in the Washington Post that the Virginia House of Delegates has voted to abolish the death penalty. And, of course, Virginia has been carrying the death penalty for longer than any other state in the nation, but it would still be the first state in the southern United States that would abolish the death penalty. But there's a slight difference between the House and the Senate versions of this that would have to be resolved, Colette? Uh, yes, you know, Virginia was, has been the poster child for the death penalty for all these years. And uh, increasingly, uh, this vote today by the House, 57 to 41, was a good indication that if you thought Virginia was trending uh, blue, light blue, it definitely is much more dark blue. The difference in the, in the legislation between the House and Senate will be worked out between the two bodies. But the House wants to retain a mandatory sentence of life without parole. That is not in the Senate version. Uh, Governor Northam, Ralph Northam, supports uh, ending the death penalties, particularly because it's racially um, discriminatory. But uh, we don't know exactly how they're going to work out. It is a significant difference whether you'll send someone to prison, life without parole, or allow someone who's committed terrible crimes uh, a chance at parole. So that'll be worked out. But the main news is, just as you said, the, the, the Virginia General Assembly is getting rid of the death penalty. Chair DeFerranti, what do you think about this development? What does it say about Virginia today? Well, I, I support ending the death penalty. It's a decision that our delegates and senators 
will primarily take, but it is part of uh, my long-held beliefs. Uh, and uh, I think that it's an, it is an indication that, the, that Virginia has is is evolved as a different state and uh, is committed to some of the uh, forward-thinking ideals that I share and I've been all about. Well, do, you, do, you, do you support the uh, life without parole provision in the House, or do you agree more with the Senate? I haven't looked at the precise legislation, um, but I, uh, at least initially, I'd lean towards the life without parole in this in these cases. Um, but I haven't looked at the the actual what all the details of, of both pieces of legislation. You can perhaps imagine that there's plenty of county business that's keeping me busy too. Well, on to Arlington County Chair DeFerranti. Congratulations on being elected chair by your colleagues. You were elected to the board in 2019, and this is your first time as chair. As chair, so congratulations. Thank you. It has been a you can imagine. Started January 2nd. It has been a very busy term so far, uh, but I'm honored to have the support of colleagues, and it is such a critical time to serve Arlington and try to serve it as well as possible. That ends the pleasantries. If you'd like to denounce, <laughs> if you'd like to denounce the chair, the number to call is 800-433-8850. In your opening remarks when you were elected in January, you said, my top priorities for the fiscal year 2022 budget will be providing essential services to those most in need. Well, one of the focuses uh, will be uh, on so-called missing middle housing. Speaking of people in need, you've said that the county risks becoming an unaffordable, as as unaffordable as San Francisco if action is not taken. And the median income income for white households in Arlington County is more than twice that for black households. How do you uh, how do you intend to focus on policy changes that will directly address this disparity and how it impacts housing? Well, it's we're um, we've had the we've been working on missing middle in, missing middle housing types, uh, which is the focus of this study for over a year now. But we have much more to go. There have been changes to land use and zoning policies in other localities that have made it easier for folks to move up the income scale. And if we think of, there's the famous recent book, Color of Law, and the history of home ownership housing policy. It has largely uh, benefited white homeowners and not helped nearly uh, the percentage of black homeowners and black families that we need. So what this, what Missing Middle would do is help uh, create a, a, a more of a ladder so that people, as they uh, build an income, and as they build their career, they can own. And it might not be a single-family home. It depends on the circumstances for anyone, any walk of life. But the possibility of moving up that income scale is what missing middle housing types uh, can help us do. Tom Sherwood. Well, um, I, I looked and it, I saw a report in Realtor.com that prices of homes and median price of a home in Arlington County has gone up 20% over the last two years, about 10% a year. And I want to tell you, I was out in Northern Virginia in Arlington on Washington Boulevard this week. I don't want to shock my friends here in the district. 
I went to the casual outdoor adventure store on the boulevard. It's been there for 70 years. It's a one-story building. I stopped by Liberty Tavern nearby for a little beverage, and I saw Rockland's Barbecue, and I bought some barbecue there. All of these were small buildings, but as I drove out Washington Boulevard, there is nothing but high-rises and high-rises under development. Is there any way you're going to really be able and these places are pretty expensive when I looked online. Is there any way you're going to preserve uh, middle housing, at least if it's going to be in condos or high-rise buildings? They all looked expensive to me. Sure. So um, the, the types of housing that you may have seen are, uh, that we're focusing on, there's um, duplexes, triplexes. Arlington had a 25-year span where we did not allow row houses, which... Um, we can say that that was really, uh, unfortunately, an effort to um, prevent uh, the the growth that we need. And really, uh, there was a discriminatory uh, impact of that policy. But now we also have to preserve the garden-style apartments that you may have passed by when you came to or, or drove or drove by when you came to, to uh, Washington Boulevard and Casual Adventure. So there's, a, there's duplexes, triplexes, and then there's those small units of 8 to 12 where they're, that's a significant component of our missing middle housing study. And that's the type of home that some of them are getting a little older and we need to invest to fix up those homes but keep them at a market rate affordable amount, which is less than median income. Um, Kojo, you mentioned the, the high uh, the disparity in income, and there's a, uh, a, certainly there are some... Uh, condos that are um, certainly expensive in Arlington, but we're focused on a type of housing that really isn't most often condos, but instead the mid-size units and zoning policies that can help those continue. Amazon revealed its design for HQ2 in Crystal City, or should I say National <laughs> Landing. And Crystal have, City. And since we're talking about housing, people... Two people on the line have questions about that. I'll start with Richard in South Arlington, Virginia. Richard, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Uh, hi, Matt. Uh, congratulations on becoming chair. And I was wondering what sort of plans the county has to help uh, with affordable housing that's aimed uh, particularly at renters, because I know a lot of renters are really worried about being priced out of the county. Sure. I think it's a really important question, and actually – Buried in the past month, there was some news that probably didn't get a ton of attention regarding an investment Amazon is actually going to make uh, in rental affordable rental housing in Crystal City, in the Crystal House uh, set of buildings. And they're actually going to put over the next five years through the Washington Housing Conservancy $381 million into keeping units affordable as uh, we do. We are concerned. We are very pleased with the investment and the office growth that will help uh, with the county's investments and budget. But um, that is part of the work that we're doing, and we're thrilled. This was a voluntary uh, step that Amazon took, and uh, it will be essentially keeping eighty percent, keeping rental units at eighty percent or lower. So that's part of our work. There's also a lot of work that we're continuing to do through a, an affordable housing master plan where we're investing and we have actually significant, we have a, a few pieces of land that we can we will do RFPs for to also increase the amount of affordable rental units. 
which uh, we are very concerned about and is a, a big priority. Thanks for your question, Richard. Mr. Chair, when we come back, we need to talk about the vaccine rollout because one anonymous listener emails, can you ask why distribution of COVID vaccines for Arlington lags behind Virginia, Fairfax County, and Alexandria? If you look at the Virginia Department of Health dashboard, residents have received vaccines at least one dose at a rate of 9,400 per 100,000 population statewide with similar rates in Fairfax and Alexandria, but in Arlington, that rate is about 7,000 per 100,000. We're going to take a short break. I'm Kojo Nam. This month at WAMU, we're lifting our voices to shine a light on black changemakers throughout American history. Some you know and some you don't, but they all change the world. Hear the stories of these incredible scientists, activists, artists, and more throughout February on WAMU 88.5 and streaming at WAMU.org. Welcome back. Our guest is Matt DeFerranti, who is the chair of the Arlington County Board. And before we went to that break, I was getting ready to talk about COVID vaccines. But quickly before that, Tom Sherwood wants to talk about Amazon revealing its new design for HQ2. Tom? Yes, um Mr. Chairman, you called it, quote, interesting, unquote. A lot of people have said something else about it. They said it looks like a soft-serve Dairy Queen-style ice cream cone. Others say it looks like the poop emoji on social media. Uh, other people say it looks great and it's going to be open to the public, maybe. People will be able to walk up it. Uh, what is your thought about that uh, radically different building in the, in, the, in the county that basically has boxes everywhere? Well, I would add to I would describe it as innovative and, and interesting. It's You're right. There's a, been a lot of buildings historically. There have been some buildings that we are um, rebuilding and that we're evolving. I'm thrilled with uh, National Landing as it's changing and growing. But historically, we had a lot of uh, government federal-style office buildings. And so this building is a significant departure. Uh, I actually like the way it looks. Part of why I um, try to be um, a bit circumspect in describing the building is that we have a pretty lengthy process of public engagement that will occur this year on that building and the entire site plan. So I, I, didn't, I don't want to, um, to preempt that process. I want to let that process play out. But if you look at the renderings, um, we certainly could use some innovative, different-looking architecture in that in the area, and there's, a, of course, a view from across the, the, the pond there to, in the, on George Washington Parkway that is pretty striking. So I okay. think it has potential, but we've got to get the process. You heard the listener email about Arlington lagging behind the state of Virginia and Alexandria and Fairfax with its vaccine rollout. What's the problem? Well, there's a couple of um, reasons why we think that that we're actually much closer to, to that per 100,000 number. Um, first, we're, there's some data that we uh, need to, to gain from our hospital, Virginia Hospital Center, that um, we're not sure that all of the data has been inputted, but we are working to get it uh, inputted. The Virginia Department of Health is helping on that. That's one component, that we think the data doesn't quite reflect all that we've done. Uh, a second is that we are, Arlington has, all localities have a lot of uh, federal employees, we have a pretty high number, and so there's some data there. But 
I will say that on Tuesday we had a work session, and we this is a metric that we watch closely. And um, I've had conversations with our county leadership and staff um, to to on this one. We are on par with one of our neighbors in Prince William. We like Fairfax and Alexandria, but you can imagine uh, I want to be first on per per person uh, doses in arms because it is uh, a burning critical priority. Well, Beth from Arlington called, but couldn't stay on the lines. She says, has the board prioritized the COVID vaccine for the hardest hit communities? Chair Differenti, how are vaccines being distributed throughout the county and what kinds of challenges are you seeing? Well, that we're, we're focusing on a couple of groups that are consistent with the governor gave us some guidance. One is over um, 75 Uh, And the guidance that the governor said is half of your doses need to focus on those 65 and above. It was direction, not uh, a... So the 75 is a component of that, and we know that most fatalities are 75 and above. And our other group has been uh, essential workers in a few categories. Um, Our firefighters, police, um, our homeless shelter workers. So that second group is also important. Um, It's a challenge because there's greatest need to prevent additional loss of life. And then there's also greatest need where you see the greatest number of cases, which uh, honestly has been amongst our Latino population. And we have been driving testing resources and will be driving vaccine doses as we have more supply to help um, our communities who have seen the greatest incidence of cases. There's a difference between cases and fatalities. So we're thinking deeply about this through an equity lens. We've uh, and we've got more to do. <clears throat> Tom Sherwood. Let, let me ask you about Arlington Schools. You have about 28,000 students, 2,200 teachers. Go- Governor Northam just this morning announced and has sent a letter to all the school systems in the state saying that he wants the schools to reopen by March 15th. Um, Alexandria, uh, Loudoun County, Fairfax County has, has said that they will be meeting this. They said this before the governor's statement. Uh, but uh, Superintendent Francisco Duran in Arlington said he wasn't quite ready to make that commitment. Um, when can parents in the, in the county expect the schools will be reopened again? And I, well, let me just point out the CDC this morning in Atlanta declined to say whether schools, schools should open uh, before all the teachers are vaccinated. They said they'll have guidance coming out on that. But that's another big issue. Should all the teachers be vaccinated? Sure. First? Well, let me start. Yeah, let me start with that second question. We have been working to vaccinate uh, teachers and uh, our Arlington public school staff, as well as child care workers. Uh, so a significant chunk of our uh, Arlington public school staff have been vaccinated, but we need a uh, once with the first dose, but we need uh, to keep working through that list. So that's a component of what we are doing. I guess big picture on the governor's order or the governor's press conference today, um, we, I, I think that the, those with primary authority are our school board for this, but we stay in close touch. I was in touch with the school board chair yesterday, and I think that Superintendent Duran want, wants to wait until he had wanted to wait this week and into the coming weeks until uh, we can get further along on the vaccinations, but also until, based on the metrics that the school board uses, we're close. I think that March 15th is a reachable deadline based on what I've seen of Governor Northam's uh, work, but I should reemphasize we're partners on the county board. The actual authority for making that decision 
is in significant part with the school board. Here is Fitzum in Arlington, Virginia. Fitzum, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, the chair, for uh, allowing me to ask this question. I'm calling about a little known uh, Arlington County code. It's called 14-216. It's a traffic violation, which uh, also is a misdemeanor carrying some, uh, like, uh, max of, uh, of 10 days in jail. Uh, this uh, law or this uh, code is affecting a lot of people's lives, like Uber drivers, Lyft drivers, and other who are living, you know, um, who, who, whose uh, li- livelihood is, is uh, driving. And uh, neighboring counties, Fairfax, Arle- Alexandria, and Prince William, they also have the same regulation that doesn't carry jail time. So this, is, this uh, uh, code is a misdemeanor in Virginia, and it's affecting a lot of uh, people's lives because... Fitzum, what's, what's, what's the, what's the so nature of the violation? What's the nature of the violation you're talking about? Fail to pay full-time and attention. It's a simple okay. traffic violation <laughs> okay. on its face, but, uh, but has a lot of uh, consequences. Uh, so is the um, chair going to look into it, or is the county planning to amend it? Because it's uh, desperately affecting uh, people of color and uh, immigrants or others who, whose livelihood is, is uh, driving. Okay. Chair DeFranti, have you given this any thought? Uh, I, this is actually one that I have not uh, heard before. I'm happy to look into it, but uh, and it's not one that has come up. I certainly will talk to our county manager and police, acting police chief about it. Um, but I don't have much background, so I can't go further. Certainly, we are committed to equity and do not want disparate impact in our any of our uh, practices or policies. And we only have about a minute left. Felicite emails. Two new new redevelopment projects have been announced that starting soon. These projects are increasing density. What is the county doing to plan for the increase in the number of families and children that will accompany this increase in density? It's a good question. Our staffs, uh, 10 years ago, Arlington Public Schools and Arlington County staffs did not work together nearly as closely to understand the the student generation impacts of development. Now they are, and every project that we see before the board has a number associated with it of the estimated number of children that will result from the project. That's an indication of what we're doing to try to manage growth and understand that how we grow as a community matters. We want growth to be uh, healthy and enable folks to thrive at different income levels and different stages of life. And I'm afraid that's about all the time we have. Given the the law that we just heard about with distracted driving, Tom Sherwood promises to stop every time he's going to look at a building in Arlington from now on. But uh, Matt DeFerranti, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Kojo and Tom. Thank you so much, Kojo. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, Phil Mendelson, chairman of the D.C. Council. If you have questions or comments for him, call us at 800-433-8850. Welcome back. Joining us now is Phil Mendelson. He is the chairman of the D.C. Council. Chair Mendelson, thank you very much for joining us. Good afternoon, Kojo. Thank you for inviting me. Tom Sherwood, everybody seems to want the FBI headquarters in their jurisdiction in this region. Governor Hogan wants it in Prince George's County. Others want it in Fairfax, Virginia. And, of course, I guess the district wants it here. What's going on? Well, this is a long-running uh, well, melodrama. 
Oh, uh, 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 Mr. Chairman, I think he was speaking to the uh, guest and the analyst. <laughs> the analyst, <laughs> I think okay. You, uh, but just uh, let me, I'll, I'll give the summary, and then we, you can uh, help us out. Uh, back in like 2011, the FBI building downtown Washington was, was said to be obsolete and beyond its useful use. There's been an effort ever since then to find a new headquarters for the place. Everyone thought it would be going to Maryland, but when President Trump came into office, he put a kibosh on anything happening. And so it's been sitting. Uh, the senators and legislators in Maryland and the governor wanted in Prince George's County. They have two sites. Virginia leaders wanted in Springfield, Virginia. There's a site down there. Uh, Mayor Bowser this week uh, stepped in and said she also wants... The, the building to stay in the district. She didn't say where. The, the, everyone wants it to move off of Pennsylvania Avenue. That can, land can be developed. But maybe it can go out to St. Elizabeth's on the West Campus. There's land there. Maybe the chairman has an idea. If the city could keep the F FBI building, where would it go, Mr. Chairman? Well, to tell you the truth, I haven't looked at where it would go. Did, did the chairman uh, what I up? remember is the discussion a few years ago that um, we were fine with it uh, vacating Pennsylvania Avenue, that there were actually better uses that were uh, better for the city uh, for pen that's, that space on Pennsylvania Avenue. Uh, okay. Um, yes, and, that's right. But, but the, okay, but that, we don't know where it's going to go, Kojo, but at least the subject gets back up again, and everyone who works for the FBI is happy. Well, a, sub a subject that's making a lot of people happy in the District of Columbia is that uh, that Wendy's at what's called Dave Thomas Circle uh, will soon be gone. I don't know any resident of the District of Columbia who, who travels in a vehicle of any type who hasn't had a problem going around that circle at some point. And I suspect, Tom Sherwood, in, in your travels as a group, in your travails and travels as a reporter, you've encountered it a lot. Yes, I learned early on to avoid it. It's the intersection of New York <laughs> Avenue and Florida Avenue, and it's a, it's a major developing area. There's a small circle. There. It's not really a circle. It's an odd shape, and it has a Wendy's there. It's been there since the 80s, and it's, it's, it's been called Dave Thomas Circle for that reason, the founder of, of Wendy's. But finally, the city, uh, the District of Columbia, has about $13 million. They are finally going to redesign and, and fix the traffic there. For anyone who travels in northern, northeast D.C., all the commuters going out to uh, Maryland and people just coming into town, and the chairman, too, I know, it's, it's quite the mess there. And so finally, after lots of discussion, there's going to be a significant change in the coming couple of years. Uh, Chair Mendelson, you'll have to stop going there for your Frosties, I guess. Well, I've actually never patronized that Wendy's. <laughs> nothing, nothing against Wendy's, but uh, actually, I'm too busy trying to maneuver the traffic lanes to uh, stop for a burger. Yeah, it really is a difficult, difficult maneuvering that has to take place there. The Capitol security fence had an unexpected effect, Chairman Mendelson, it prevented the district government from being able to deliver copies of its bills to Congress, which D.C. has to do under the Home Rule Act. But what I can't figure out, and others too, is how exactly did this play out? Did a district official try to get through the fence and was actually prevented? Uh, well, we have to deliver, the, the council's the one that delivers legislation to Congress because of the Home Rule requirement that all bills have to lay over in Congress for 30 or 60 days. 
And uh, so we routinely send our bills to have somebody from the council staff, the secretary's office, go up to the vice president's office and the uh, speaker's office to deliver. With the fences, we were unable to do that. And there were, as I understand it, phone calls to figure out how we could get in, and we couldn't. Um, but why? It turns why? out around the time that I announced this that... Uh, some arrangements had been made to uh, meet uh, almost clandestinely at a nearby hotel to <laughs> deliver bills. <laughs> but but it, what, what was the explanation given for why council staff was not allowed inside the fence area? I mean, there are hundreds of people going to work there every day. Uh, yes, but uh, we don't have um, Senator House employee badges. Uh, there was no explanation that I know of. It's just uh, couldn't get in. Oh. And when uh, we called the offices, get, uh, couldn't get in. Don't uh, Well, what about our two shadow statehood senators? Don't they have some kind of hill pass? Maybe give them some work to do for change. And also, <laughs> let me ask you while we're on this subject. You live, on, kind, I think you live kind. on part. Uh, yes, I will be as best I can. Uh, you live, I think, on part. I think it's still called Capitol Hill. Uh, has that big fence, which, of course, I went down yesterday, has that fence interfered with your ability to get through town and around town? What are you doing about that fence personally? Well, uh, personally, I know um, how to maneuver around it. I mean, um, I have to either go north of the Capitol Complex to Mass Avenue or I have to go south to the freeway. Uh, as residents know, Constitution and Independence Avenues are blocked off, and even, I believe, Washington Avenue, which is uh, southwest of the Rayburn House office building, is, is inaccessible to residents. It's pretty outrageous. It, it should not be the case, uh, either for the federal government or for the city, that this is happening. Why is delivering hard copies by hand still necessary? We have the technology to send things electronically, you know. Uh, that's not the way uh, Congress wants it. They require that I have to sign each transmittal letter personally and that these uh, bills be delivered uh, by paper to their, their offices. Well, How would they know whether you signed it or not? I don't know. When I became chair, <laughs> I was told that my predecessor had used, his staff had used a uh, signing pen and that um, got caught and was told couldn't do it. Well, the initial Vaccine rollout in D.C. has been uneven with disparities among racial and, along racial and, and geographic lines. But here's Warren in D.C. with a question about that. Warren, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Uh, thank you, Kojo. Uh, yeah, uh, Chairman Mendelson, um, this has received a less attention. And the issue which pertains to me personally is about chronic conditions. Uh, people with chronic conditions have effectively been put in the back of the line by D.C. Health, uh, and this is not consistent with the CDC guidelines or other states like Virginia and Delaware. Uh, in both states, I would now be eligible. I likely would have received a vaccine. But what D.C. Health is doing, while well, in early January they said that persons with chronic conditions would start receiving their vaccines in, uh, this week, the first week of February, They've now deleted that entirely from their website. And what they've done instead is add this huge list of persons that they've deemed essential workers. It was originally just teachers that expanded to grocery okay. employees, child care, 
uh, lawyers providing independent. They don't have a great services. deal of time, but I guess your question is when will people with, with chronic conditions be able to get the vaccine, Warren? Yeah, that, that's, okay. the, that's the issue. And, and okay. the lack of prioritization, it seems to be more about political power than about oh. actual risk. Chairman Mendelson? Well, um, the Department of Health would have made that decision, not the council. And uh, as uh, I'm sitting here, I don't know the explanation why they would have done it. It makes sense what you're saying. Um, I will say the fundamental problem with the vaccine rollout is that there aren't enough vaccines. So our our uh, shipment this week was 11,000 doses. That's how much the district received. Our population is 700,000. In addition, healthcare workers who we have to vaccinate, uh, many of them are non-residents. So the total number is far greater than 700,000, and the number of vaccines we received this week was 11,000. It's not unique to the district, but it is the problem that there aren't enough doses for um, the people who we want to get vaccinated first. You're Tom Sherwood. Well, I want to mention statehood for a moment, but in a different context. I know the mayor, I know you, I know all the council members, I know people who say they want statehood for the district, and it seems to be having another moment, although support for statehood seems to go up and down like a thermometer. Uh, I want to, The members of the House and Senate and the Congress, the senators, have all supported statehood for the district. And I'm just wondering, do you really think that the the suburban senators and House members will support statehood for D.C. when they realize that they will lose hundreds of millions of dollars? For right now, uh, the district can't tax people who live in the suburbs and work in the city. That amounts to $1.4 billion a year. $800 million goes to Maryland. $600 million goes to Virginia. If we were to become a state, we would be able to tax those jobs, not the suburban states. Do you really think that the statehood has support among the suburban legislators? Uh, I really think that they've made the commitment that they support it. And I think that what you're bringing up is not a secret or unknown to them. Uh, it's certainly not a reason why we are demanding statehood. We're demanding statehood because it's a basic, fundamental, democratic right. And we are citizens of the United States, but we don't enjoy all the privileges of the citizens of the United States, right. like voting, like having representation in the, in the Congress. And what's especially ex uh, exasperating is, as you know, Tom, that uh, Congress routinely uh, adopts legislation that affects the district, uh, like when they shortchanged us almost $800 million last year in coronavirus relief. But we don't I, have a vote I'm at sorry. the table. I understand that. I'm just just trying to raise the flag here that some of the support that I hear, theoretical support for statehood, I think is I worry it's going to fade away when they figure out what the economic impact on the suburbs will be. But thank you very much for that answer. Chairman Mendelson, sure. last month the council launched an Office of Racial Equity, which is charged with assessing how legislation will impact racial equity. Um, what are your hopes for that office? What exactly is it going to do? Well, the legislation that we adopted, which came through the Committee of the Whole, so I'm the one who moved it to the Council, uh, sets up a office, a racial equity office in the Council, and a separate one in the Executive Branch and under the City Administrator. 
the uh, council office is to look at all legislation that is uh, moving to the full council for a vote, all permanent legislation, and, um, and give us an equity analysis. In other words, force us to look at what we're doing through a racial equity lens. Um, you know, there's not always a bright line in, on equity issues. Some, a policy could both have um, positive effects and adverse effects on, on minority populations or on African Americans. Uh, but we need to be more thoughtful and aware of what the effects could be. And that's what the office is intended to do on the legislative side. On the executive side, it's meant to look at how government offices, agencies actually do their business and how they could do it better to be more equitable. Uh, it's a very different uh, mission than on the council side because ours is policy. The executives is on implementing the actual actions of government. Some, Mr. Chairman, on equity, uh, there are some people, who, uh, parents particularly in the city, who are very upset that you, in reorganizing the council for this two-year period going forward, eliminated the education committee, which is one of the most difficult issues in the city in terms of getting equity education throughout all eight wards. Why is it that you eliminated the Independent Education Committee, which could focus full-time on education, and leave it in your what you call the Committee of the Whole, which you chair, and all 13 members are members? Is, have you downgraded education? Absolutely not. Uh, and I think what's lost uh, by those who have raised this issue is that the Committee of the Whole, which I chair, which is all members of the council, has had joint jurisdiction on education for the last two years. So uh, we're continuing with our oversight and jurisdiction. Um, David Grasso, who was the chair of the Education Committee, retired from the council. And uh, so, you know, without him, the um, and looking at the organization of the, the rest of the committees, the, um, it made sense to go back to the way the council was doing it from 2007 to 2013, which is the entire council, all council members, are on what is in essence the uh, education committee, the committee of the whole. So the commitment hasn't been reduced at all. If anything, I think we're going to step it up, do more oversight, press harder for uh, educational improvements in our city. Okay, I'll see that case. Kojo will let me have another issue. You've supported a bill that would break up the hated Department of Consumer Ah, wait, hold on a second. Hold on a second, please, because we have a caller. Yeah, hold on, Tom. We have a caller okay. who wants to address that, and then I'll go to Tom. Okay. Here is Linwood okay, in Washington, D.C. Linwood, your turn. Thank you, Kojo. Two quick questions. Uh, Council uh, Chairman, holding slumlords accountable is a challenge for every city. In D.C., even enforcement through the court's process or receivership is lengthy and doesn't guarantee repairs will actually be done. So what are you doing to address that as a council? Are you giving additional resources to DCRA, such as loans for property owners to make repairs? Second question, the breakup bill doesn't provide a budget increase or new resources to conduct more rental property inspections or increase funding for abatement to make repairs that landlords won't do. So how will the breakup improve housing conditions? Thank you. 
The breakup that well, Linwood is referring to is that the D.C. Council voted to override two vetoes passed down from D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser. One of them breaks up the Department of Consumer and Regulatory Affairs, a move that's been debated for years to address criticism like you just heard from residents and businesses. Now, Council Chairman Mendelson or Tom Sherwood, you wanted to come in first. Well, I just wanted to point out, as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, that although the council has overridden the mayor's veto of the breakup of DCRA, there is no money in the budget to do the transition. It would take several million dollars in some period of time. Are you going to find money in the budget right now, this current fiscal year or the next fiscal year, to break up DCRA? You've passed the legislation, but it isn't funded, as I understand it. And please keep in mind Linwood's question also. Uh, well, the short answer is yes, Tom, that's the plan. Um, you know, the uh, the caller sounded critical that there was no funding associated with the bill, but this was not an appropriations bill. And although this gets a little wonkish, the fact is, is that the council can't fund something outside of a budget. We'll be getting a budget at the end of March. Uh, so the... Um, you know, folks just need to understand that this is the process. We we establish policy in this case to break up the agency, and then when we have the budget, we will look to fund it. I think it's unfortunate the mayor isn't supporting this. Um, in a way, I understand because uh, you know she doesn't like maybe she doesn't like the council trying to reorganize the executive side of the government. But the Department of Consumer Regulatory Affairs was created. 35 years ago as a reform by consolidating something like a half dozen different agencies. This was going to be a one-stop shop for all kinds of permitting and, and housing code enforcement. And what happened is that what we've seen over 35 years is that the agency doesn't work. And uh, so, you know, we can continue with a practice that just has not worked or we can try something different. What I think and what the council agrees is that by having a smaller agency that's focused on construction, including illegal construction, and housing code enforcement, that we will get better outcomes. And you'll fund it? Yes, that's you'll, the plan. Okay, that's what we'll be watching for. Yes. Uh, the number of homicides in the district is higher now than this time last year. Ward 8 Councilmember Treon White wants the district to declare a state of emergency to combat gun violence. He said that fatal shootings would have received more attention from district officials if the victims were white. What action is the council taking to address this violence? Well, the council's done a number of things, and, and the most current and relevant is that we have a police reform commission that's going to look at how we can improve policing. And while that's not directly about violent crime, uh, it is um, going to it's going to touch on that. How can we have better and more effective policing? Over the years, we the council has adopted all, uh, initiatives that are alternatives to typical traditional law enforcement, uh, namely like trying to do violence interruption. The Streets is the name of one of the programs. Uh, we've actually um, got, I think, three programs in place on the executive side. The, um, it is disturbing that uh, violent crime is up. I'm looking at the data this year to date compared with last year to date. There's one more homicide than a year ago at this time. Still, 18 is 18 too many, and it has been a steady increase over the last uh, half dozen years. It is disturbing the amount of gun violence, and um, 
I'm hopeful that with a new chief of police and with the recommendations of the Police Reform Commission and our continuing with alternatives to tr traditional law enforcement, <clears throat> that we will see that this trend turns around. Can we okay. go back to schools? One second, please. Here is okay. Mona in Washington. Hi, Mona. Long time no here. How are you doing? I'm just fine, Kojo. Thank you very much. Um, Basically, before I go, I, I just want to make two things. But Noel and Mommy said to wish you happy birthday. Thank you. The next thing is, <laughs> as you know, I live here on Capitol Hill, just four and a half blocks away from the House of Representatives. So I drive around and drive. And we've got a new name for where we live now. It's called Fortress Capitol Hill, D.C. And um, I just thought I'd say that. I do love the barbed wire and waving at the National Guardsmen. And then the other thing, real quick, is... I can't believe we're doing this with the vaccinations. I feel very put upon by having my zip code be the mark by which I can um, get a vaccination. I'm 68, or almost 69, but don't tell anybody I said that. Okay. And I do have medical issues. Technically, since the 11th of January, I get on that, I don't go to sleep. I get on that computer half an hour before. And I clicked and said, guess what? This morning mm. I got one. Today is the 5th of February. There. Okay. That's all I wanted to say. And it's lovely Chairman to hear your voice. We still listen to you all. Chairman Mendelson, people who live in areas that have um, certain wards or, or zip code are having a greater difficulty. And I guess that's a part of the city trying to bring some racial equity into the distribution of vaccines, correct? Yeah, I mean the challenge is that uh, we've 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 targeted the government has targeted uh, zip codes where there's a higher incidence of the vaccine or a higher incidence of fatalities from the not the vaccine the the, the um, virus um, or higher fatalities from the virus uh, or lower uptake of getting vaccinated and I think that's a good thing and the mayor's announced that she's going to I think start sending folks out door to door to try to increase the uptake in the vaccine but you know the caller what she pointed out uh, and what my staff told me was that there were 1800 units available vaccine um, units available this morning and they were all taken up within six minutes so they're becoming available it speaks to there not being enough vaccine it certainly does. Tom Sherwood, we only have about a minute left. Uh, okay. The Cocho Show, uh, we reported first this week that the, um, the mayor went into court uh, to get a TRO, a temporary restraining order, to keep teachers from striking or doing a job action. Nothing has happened with that TRO. I checked with the attorney general's office this morning. It's sitting there. Do you support the mayor's going into court to have a temporary restraining order against the Washington Teachers Union to help make sure the teachers show up for work? Well, the restraining order was to prevent the teachers union from calling for a strike or all but calling for a strike and calling right. for a sick out. Uh, that would be in violation that? of the collective bargaining agreement if they were to strike or have a coordinated sick out. Right. So this right. restraining order was nothing more than to enforce the existing terms of the collective bargaining agreement. And yes, I support that. But this, despite the fact that the, that the head of the Washington Teachers Union and the for that matter, the head of the American Federation of Teachers both said that they were not, in fact, planning a strike. In which case, there's nothing to restrain. Exactly. Well, I'm afraid that's <laughs> so all. The, then there's no problem. I'm afraid that's all the time thing, we have. You've got to say it quick, in 10 seconds or less. 
10 seconds, and that is when we talk about statehood, remember that it was the district that bailed out Congress on January 6th when we sent our police up there to help them restore order, and when it was our National Guard that we were desperately trying to call out. The district really, I think, showed showed. And now well. they don't want our council staffers to go in there. Chair Mendelson, thank you for joining us. Today's <laughs> Politics Hour was produced by Sidney Granin. Coming up Monday, Dr. Lena Wen joins us to answer your questions about the vaccine rollout. Then Dr. Wen stays with us to hear what's on kids' minds when it comes to the coronavirus. It's Kojo for Kids, of course. Finally, save the date. Tuesday, February 16th is our next Kojo in Your Community event. We'll discuss local efforts to dismantle systemic racism, including a Maryland legislative leader's proposals for a black agenda and the founding of a new black party. Go to wamu.org slash events to register for this virtual event. Thank you for listening and have a great weekend. You too, Tom Sherwood. Uh, you too. We may have snow on Sunday. This is true. I am Coach Onandi. Thanks for listening to the Kojo Namdi Show. And if you're already a member of WAMU 88.5, thank you for your support. If not, it's easy to give online at wamu.org. Just click the donate button and thanks.